Matthew seven thirteen through 27. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You would recognize them by their fruit. As grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles, so every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will I enter in, will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one that does my will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And then the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Just please take a moment and meditate on the Word of God. You can be seated. Like every good preacher, Jesus gets to the end of the sermon and puts the listener on the spot. You've listened to me for two chapters, two and a half chapters, and now it's time to choose. As we've walked down this path called the Sermon on the Mount, it's like we've just been walking along with Jesus, and we've been listening, what he has to say about the kingdom of heaven, but we've come to a point where there's a fork in the road, and the, the teaching is coming to a close, and now... It's up to every listener to say, okay, which, which road are you going to choose? You might remember the, the famous poem by Robert Frost, The Road Less Traveled. Remember that opening line, uh, two roads diverged in a yellow wood. But, but you can't take them both. And everyone here is going to get on one of those two roads. There's not a third row. There's not another way. It's Jesus saying to us after all this teaching, okay, we're at a fork in the road. And he turns to you and he turns to me and says, okay, it's, it's your choice. Which, which road are you going to find yourself on at the end of the sermon? So after the service is over, we'll have communion. And the, after the last song... Um, if you want somebody to pray with you, pray for you, I'll be up here, another elder will be up here. But this is, a, this is an eternally waiting moment, not that any moment couldn't be, but here we're, we're all gathered here for the next few minutes just to listen to these last closing remarks of Jesus from his most famous sermon. 
And he closes them with to say to you individually, it's time to choose. It's time to know which road you're on. It's time to understand the end of each one of those roads. And so if you have some sense of God speaking to you this morning and you just feel like it would be helpful to somebody to hear that and pray with you, then we'll be available after the service. You can't possibly miss it. And just in case you could, Jesus decides to say it three different ways. First of all, there's a a narrow gate and there's a wide gate in verses 13 and 14. One, One of the roads will lead to life. One of the roads leads to the destruction. Verses 15 through 19, there's two trees. One has healthy fruit. One has diseased fruit. And in case you didn't get the first two, there's two houses. One's built on the sand. One's built on the foundation that's a rock who is Jesus Christ. So as we travel down and we get to this fork in the road, the question is, which which road are you on? Now, it's interesting to me how Jesus ends the sermon. Let's look at verse 27. Here's his last statement. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat against that house, that house that was built on the sand, and it fell, and great was the fall. Amen. Go in peace. And I'm like, hey, Jesus, this is the greatest sermon. You can't end like that. You just can't end in that place. You can't say, well, you know where there's two different houses, they have two different foundations, and and one, when the rain comes and beat against the house, it's going to stand, but there's going to be another house when when the worldly problems come. It's going to fall, and great is the fall. Let's pray and go in peace. I felt like uh, it's like the, the person has a snow globe. Jesus comes in, and you're all settled down, and now he goes, okay, I'm turning it all upside down. And you want to say, Jesus, now you've gotten me all confused. There there are some people who say, Lord, Lord, but they don't get into the kingdom of heaven. Which road am I on? And and he's purposely done that. So you would try to figure out, this is a weighty decision. It's not something you just want to assume. Hey, I know I'm on this right road because some people assume they're on the right road and they're on the wrong road. This morning I want to address two main reasons Jesus' closing remarks are so disruptive. And then just at the very end, I want to point to the place that you find peace. So, number one, one reason Jesus' closing illustrations are so disruptive is because our culture has an allergic reaction to narrowness. Anybody says something narrow, rash breaks out, Start to sweat. You just don't like that there's two choices. You, you, if you just lived in America and you got to this last part and this is all you said, you'd just say, there can't just be two choices. I mean, two roads, two trees, two houses. There's got to be all kinds of roads. There can't possibly be just two. We're uncomfortable with Jesus' narrowness because we've spent our lives in a circling the cultural buffet of, I'm okay, you're okay. People basically have a good heart. Everyone gets a trophy. And when you live in that kind of culture, when basically everybody has a good heart and everybody deserves a trophy, and I'm okay, and I'm sure you're okay, none of which is true, 
But that's what you've ingested. Then you hear this narrowness and a rash breaks out. And so Jesus's comments are on a collision course with our culture. And I'll just make a few comments about that. First, Jesus isn't teaching anything new. So if you've been reading through the Bible or you're a student of the Bible, you know this is a message that's been preached right from the very beginning. Moses chapter 30, he stands up to the people of God just before he dies, and this is what he says. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death. Now choose life. Very similar to what Jesus says. I've been talking to you about life, the kingdom of heaven. Enter the kingdom of heaven and enter the life. And now it's a fork in the road. And and he's saying, I'm, I'm telling you, it's two choices, life or death, life or destruction. The very first song in the Old Testament songbook, Psalm 1, what does he say? There's There's two paths. There's two, two ways to live. There's the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. There's no third path. There's no middle ground in the Bible. So secondly, first, it's not new. Secondly, the, the idea of narrowness or what some people would say exclusivity of Christianity, it, it's not new to Christianity. There, there's, there's narrowness in almost all religious structures and sometimes it just feels like if you're a Christian, you're one of the narrow ones, and then everybody else is much more generous. And I would say at every point, any kind of religious structure, it has some narrowness in it. So if you're an atheist, you're excluding people who believe in God. So you are exclusive at some level. If you're a Hindu, you're excluding Muslims and Christians. So if you go to India now, there's a lot of persecution against the Christians. They're putting those people to death. A country with 30 million gods can't have this one God. So they're exclusive. If you're Buddhist, you're exclusive of Hindus. That's how Buddhism arose, is they didn't believe in certain things that the Hindus believed in. So Buddhists came along and said, we don't believe in how you believe. You, we're excluding you from the Buddhist camp. If you're Muslims, you exclude all other religions like Christianity. If you're the Baha'i faith, which probably most of you are not familiar with, but this is the one that's supposed to be the most open. And when I was in college, I was walking in downtown Greenville, South Carolina. I ran into a a man who was on the street corner, and he had some Baha'i literature trying to talk to anybody who would talk to him. And I came up to him and had an encounter. And he says this, we accept everyone... As long as they're not exclusive. <laughs> and I said, so every, everyone can come in, right? Right. I'm exclusive. Uh, you can't come in. See, e- even the people who don't exclude anybody exclude somebody. So every religion has some kind of exclusive claim. So just hearing Jesus say it shouldn't make you break out into a rash. Because the truth by itself is narrow. It is exclusive in some way. And so we shouldn't be surprised to find it here. In fact, most other countries outside of the West don't have an allergic reaction to exclusivity. If you go to a Muslim country, if you go to India, and you talk about religion that's exclusive, 
They're saying, sure, we think it is exclusive. Now, they might not agree with you, but they don't disagree with the, I, the idea of exclusivity. That is mostly in our culture, the culture that I grew up in, the culture you grew up in. You may have heard critics of exclusivity try to describe with this uh, illustration. I'm sure you've heard it. It's like religion is like a three blind men who've come up and they grabbed hold of an elephant. You've heard this? So religion is the elephant, but the three blind men come up and they grab a hold of a different part of the elephant. So somebody grabs hold of the ear and they say, okay, blind man, you've discovered religion. What is it? It's like a, it's like a big leaf. No, no, no. It's not like that because somebody else has the tail. And they say, no, it's like a kind of a thick rope. Then somebody else says, no, it's not like that. It's, it's, I've got the trunk. It's like a big long hose. Or maybe there's another one who has the leg and says, no, it's like a big tree trunk. They're all trying to describe something. And the person would say, see, this is like a description of religion. Everybody has like a little piece of the truth, but they're not able to stand back and see the whole. And if they could stand back and see the whole, then they would understand that it would be arrogant to claim that you can see the whole thing. So Leslie Newbigin, who's a pretty famous missionary, encountered this argument, and this was his response to that kind of argument. The only way you could possibly know every other person sees only part of the truth is to assume that you can see all of the truth, which is the very thing you're claiming no one can do. Do you hear what he's saying? The, the person who wants to say, oh, now nobody could know all of the truth. You as a Christian or you as a Muslim or you as a Hindu, you have a little piece of it, but there's no way you could see all of it. And that person is saying, because I'm at an advantage point, I can actually see all of it. Well, that's the one thing you're saying no one can do is somebody can see it all. It's actually, in reality, New Begin ends, it's arrogant to say that all religions are equal. Because you're assuming you know all of the truth. Tim Keller says this, when someone says no one has the superior take on spirituality, that is a take on spirituality. Which is saying you're superior to everyone else. So we, we, we don't need to have this allergic reaction. I think most of the time when you're talking to somebody and they have that reaction, if you can just get them to see that whatever it is that they believe, there is some narrowness in it. So you can begin to, to jettison away from that conversation like that's something so extravagant. It's not. They themselves have some kind of narrowness. Third comment here on this point of why... This is so disruptive, these, this last three illustrations. The Oxford Dictionary, you don't, you, don't, you don't know this probably, but they have a word of the year. And it's not usually a brand new word. It's a word that gets used with greater frequency during the year 2016 or 2017, whatever the year is. And 2016 has a word of the year. You ready for it? It's a hyphenated word. So they got really two words for one. But their word of the year is post-truth. You ever heard that? It's almost always used in political speak. Post-truth. Here's the definition. Relating to circumstances in which truth is less influential in shaping your opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. 
Let me say that again. Relating to circumstances, so something happens and truth is less influential in shaping your opinion than your emotions or your personal belief. So something happens and what's true is what you feel. Or what's true is your personal belief. The truth itself isn't really that valuable. It's just how you feel about it and what your personal belief is. Here's what one writer says. We live in a post-truth world. Truth has become so devalued. What once was the gold standard of political debate, meaning the truth, is now worthless currency. (laughs) If you just turn on the news, we live in a post-truth world. The truth doesn't really matter. It's now just worthless currency. It's based on your emotions. It's based on your personal belief. And when a post-truth culture hears that Jesus says, I am the truth, they have an allergic reaction to that. Because emotionally, that doesn't feel that comfortable. So when Jesus comes into a post-truth culture and says, hey, there's only two roads. There's only two ways. You say, I don't like that. And then you just reject it out of hand. Why? Because you don't like it. doesn't matter if it's true. It matters how you feel about it. Now, that's the kind of culture that we live in. Here's my guess for those who like the post-truth world. My guess is that their post-truth belief is subjective. So, for example... You're in a car accident with somebody who believes in the post-truth world. You're a post-truther and somebody's run a stoplight and they've hit you and damaged your car and damaged you. And they get out and say, I feel like you were the one that was at fault. My belief is that you ran the red light. No, no, no. You ran the red light, buddy. You're the one that's at fault. Well, I don't feel that way. I bet there aren't that many post-truthers at that moment. I'm betting today at the Super Bowl, there's not a lot of post-truthers. If you're a Patriots fan or you're a Falcons fan and the other team scores a touchdown, but their little toe is on the white line, you're not going to say, I just feel like he got in. Let's give it to him. No, you're going to say, no, he didn't get in. And you're going to have cameras from every angle because you want to know the truth. And the truth is super narrow. If your foot even a little bit is on the white line, you are out. And nobody has a problem with it. But when Jesus comes in and says, you're on one of these two roads. Oh, we can't have that. That didn't make me feel good. That's not my personal belief. So we live in that kind of culture. And when you live in that kind of culture, you just have to recognize that's part of the water that you're swimming in. That's part of the dialogue that happens in our world. And so it makes it difficult. I don't think it's accidental that after Jesus talks about these two paths, look with me in verse 15. The very first thing he says is, beware of false prophets. Why? Because false prophets aren't going to like two roads. And they're going to try to come in and say, ah, you know, usually, you know, you have people on the right and people on the left. And the truth is, where's the truth? Somewhere in the middle. 
And you go, yeah, that's probably right. No, that's not right. Jesus is trying to say, no, there's two roads. There's not a middle road. There, there is God and there's one road to God. There's not a bunch of roads that go up to the mountain to God. There's just one way. But false prophets like to come in and say different things. And Jesus says, beware of the false prophets. They are responsible for leading you to the very destruction that they say does not exist. One warning before I get to the second reason this narrowness makes us squirm. If your belief in the exclusivity of Christ breeds in you a feeling of superiority... If your right belief in the exclusivity of Christ breeds in your heart a feeling of superiority, if it breeds in you a posture of looking down, then you're probably going through the wide gate. Because a feeling of superiority doesn't fit through the narrow gate. See, you can have a right belief that conjures up a pride in your heart and you can't fit through the narrow gate anymore. Second reason Jesus' statement is disruptive, the first reason is really the division between maybe those who are on the outside and those who are on the inside, those who are taking the road to destruction and those who are taking the road to life. The, The second reason is, Jesus seems to divide up this people who are both on the inside. Look with me. Verses 21 through 23. These are verses that send a shockwave through every heart. Not every one of you who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, no. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, on the last day, on the judgment day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name? We told people about you. We cast out demons in your name. We did mighty works in your name. And then Jesus will say, I declare, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He doesn't say, no, you didn't do those things. Yeah, you did those things, but I still don't know you. So that's like, you know, the, the, the automatic defibrillator out here the aed that that's what you need after you read these verses because everyone starts feeling like "Uh uh-oh he's he's talking to the people who are on the inside of the church what what is he talking about and let me just notice three things he's talking about camouflage what i'm calling camouflage christianity first thing we want to notice that is that jesus points out three traits that both the authentic christian has and the camouflage Christian has. Number one, they have an orthodox profession. Orthodox. You know what that means? Ortho. What does that mean? To straighten. If you go to the orthodontist, what do you want? You want straight teeth. So these people have an orthodox belief. They've got the, the right belief. They say that Jesus is Lord. They come up to Jesus and say, you are Lord. You are Jesus. You are the son of the living God. You, you're God in the flesh. That's right. And they're right. And everyone who's authentic and people who are, who are camouflaged can believe that thing. Secondly, they're, they're, they have a passionate 
profession. They don't just have an orthodox profession. They have a passionate profession. And you see it in the text, and you don't quite grab it out of the English. But when someone comes up and says, Lord, Lord, it's a way of describing emotional intensity. So when when David loses his oldest son, Absalom, remember what he says? Absalom, Absalom. It's a pain in his heart. It's describing an emotional intensity. When Jesus looks at Mary and Martha and says, Martha, Martha, there's an emotional intensity. So when the people come up and say, Lord, Lord, camouflage Christianity can have an orthodox profession and can have a passionate profession. You can stand up, you can raise your hands, you can hoop and holler. And you can be on your way to destruction. Finally, what they share is an active profession. Look at verse 22. They, they're doing all these things. They have stories about how they've seen Jesus work in the lives of other people. Yet Jesus looks at these orthodox, passionate, active professions and says, I, I don't know who you are. And if you have a pulse and you say you're a Christian, you're leaning forward and saying, how do I know? How do I know I'm authentic? How do I know I'm not sitting here and I'm, I'm camo- in camouflage? And Jesus points out two, two distinctions. I'm going to say they're this, giving up your will, verse 21, grasping grace. This illustration about two houses. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, If you listen carefully to what Jesus is saying, it's possible to have the right doctrine, be passionate, be active, but not truly surrender your will. You can say the Apostles' Creed. You can take communion. You can sing the songs. You can raise your hands. You can serve on the service team. But you still reserve the right for your will to be done over his will. Let me give you a couple of examples. In First Samuel, Samuel the prophet, the last judge, uh, ordains Saul to be the king. And the, the sort of the motto for Saul is, Saul is for Saul. And so he really, he, he's trying to do what's right, but in the end, he reserves the right to just decide what he wants to do. And it comes out in this one particular episode where, where God says through Samuel to Saul, Saul, there, there's this group of people called the Amalekites. They're completely wicked. You need to go fight this battle. And I don't want anything left alive. It's, they're, they're all supposed to die, even the livestock. Saul goes, has a great victory, comes back with the livestock. And he meets Saul, or Samuel. And Saul says that we had this great victory. And Samuel says, what is this bleeding? This, what, what is this noise I hear in the background of these animals? And here's how Saul responds. 
I thought we could offer the livestock as a sacrifice to the Lord. Now, you can just notice in this one phrase, what's the big problem? I thought. Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice. And what Samuel means is, Saul, you fool. God doesn't want the sheep. He wants you. That's the whole purpose of this. He doesn't need sheep. He's wanting you. And what you're saying by keeping the sheep is that you're still at the center of your life. When God asks you to do things that don't make sense, you reserve the right to do your will. And that happens all the time. Oh, I know the Bible, and I've got it down, and I serve, and I do communion, but God asked me to do something, and I go, you know, that just doesn't make sense. So I'm going to just jettison God on that. You're still the king. I don't know it. I can't see it. You may be blind to it yourself until you hear this word. You don't want someone coming and saying, you're a fool. You've got this thing over here that you think God doesn't know about. Or you think, well, maybe if I just give it to God. He doesn't need that. He needs you. He wants you. Another example, let's just use this from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew six nineteen through 24 is a, this teaching. Everybody knows it. Laying up treasures for yourself in heaven. Jesus comes and says, you know, part of being in the kingdom of heaven is giving generously. And you want to give away to eternal projects and you want to limit how much you give to yourself. Not saying that's not important, but there's a limitation here. And you want to really be careful with your money. And I, I, I want you, not because I need it, I don't need any money, God says. You need to give away some of your money. So it doesn't capture your heart because you can't serve God and money at the same time. If you listen to that sermon and go home and say something like this, Jesus didn't understand how expensive it would be to live in America. I can't give very much money away. You are a fool. You're in a very dangerous position. You have heard clearly what Jesus wants. And you're saying, yeah, but you know what? That part, I don't want to do that part. That's foolish. So we have to give up our will. Second thing we have to do is we have to grasp hold of grace. This is the parable of the two, these two houses. And Jesus, I think, just gives the parable to explain what he's been talking about in verses 21 through 23. You notice from this parable, from the outside, you can't tell the difference between the two houses. They look the same. Both are built of the same material. What are they built of? They're built of an orthodox profession. They're built of a passionate profession. And they're built of an active profession. They all have the same siding. The difference isn't the way they look on the outside. The difference is their foundation. And one foundation is built on the rock of Jesus, and one is built on the sand of yourself, like Saul. 
So my question here is, how do I know what my foundation is? Let me say it this way. If you're a person who believes all the right doctrine, you passionately sing the songs, you're active, and then life starts beating against your life, wind, rains come against your life, difficulty, and you say something like this, you probably wouldn't say it out loud, but maybe in your mind you're familiar with this. Hey, I repeat the Apostles' Creed. I, I show up most Sunday mornings. I show real passion for Jesus, and I think some of these other people are frozen that are around me. I, I'm, I'm one of the ones who regularly volunteers to serve. I've been good, so God should take away these winds and rain. I've been good, so God should answer my prayer. I've been good, so I should have God's favor. If you say these kinds of things when the world starts beating against your life, then you're a person who's building your house on the sand of yourself. God owing you... Because you have been good is what Jesus calls foolishness. If you say, I've done all these things, so God owes me. You can tell where your foundation is. It's on yourself. It's the opposite of grace. A house built on the rock. No better example than Job. When the wind and the rains of the world beat on Job's life, his wife comes into him. Remember what she says? Are you still holding on to your integrity? Are you still holding on to your belief in God? And then what does she say? Curse God and die. Job's great response. You are a fool, woman. He gets it. He hadn't heard the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't have the illustration of two houses. But he says, that is foolishness. Though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. That is somebody who's got a rock for a foundation. If you do things thinking God owes you, you have built your whole religious structure even if you raise your hands and sing out loud and say the creed and take the, perfect, take the communion, you are a fool. You have built your house on sand. And Jesus is so kind to come in to say to my soul this week and to your soul right now, Paul, or insert your name, you know what road you're on? Are you sure? There are a lot of people on that last day that are going to say, I, I stood right next to that person, and, and they're not here. They look the same on the outside, but they didn't have the same inside. So back to my question and my conclusion, my eternally weighty question for you. Do you know which road you're on, which foundation your life is built on? It's time to choose.
you get to the end of the sermon and you're disturbed about the condition of your own heart, the genius of the sermon. How would you know? What do you do with this disturbed heart? Where do you go? You go back to the very beginning of the sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To get through the narrow gate, you have to say, I'm completely bankrupt. So Jesus' sermon, if it stirs up your your soul, the answer is, just go back and read the sermon. You'll find all the answers in the sermon. So I don't know where you are this morning. You may feel like you're in a great spot, and if you are, praise the the Lord, because you're there because of God's grace. But you may be wondering, hey, you know what? A lot of this wide road talk, I thought I was on the right road, and I may be on the way to destruction. I've been in church all my life. Yep, and you can be on the road to destruction. Because it's not church that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you. So I'm praying for each one of you that today you'd know, you'd know for sure when you walk out which road you're on. You will be on one of the two roads. If it would be helpful, I'll be here, pray for you afterwards. Another elder will be here too.